Okay, am I on? Cool. Good morning, everyone. It's a real pleasure to see you. Will you just pray with me as we start? Heavenly Father, we're just so conscious um, of our need of you. And um, I've just been really thinking over this last week just how you, you teach us that we are sheep and that you are the shepherd, that you are just different from us. You see further. You, you have a power perspective that is just completely foreign to us. And so, God, I just pray that you would please come into this place as shepherd this morning. And God, without you, this is just going to be a sheep bleating at other sheep. And uh, we pray that uh, we know, we have the hope that when we open up your word, it is more than that, Lord, that you are speaking into this world with words of truth. So would you open our ears, open our hearts to it, and would you help us to be obedient to your voice and to go where you want us to go. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're just going to get right into this this morning. Our passage this morning is about losing things that we don't have the right to keep, which doesn't sound so bad, does it, when I put it bluntly like that? If I don't have the right to keep something, well, I imagine I won't feel too bad about losing it, right? But it turns out it's a peculiar feature of our human hearts that once we have something, we start to believe that we have the right to it whether we do or not. And this kind of insulates us from the true fragility of our situation. We believe that we're padded all around with rights to keep things that really we don't have a right to keep at all. Let me give you a kind of dumb example to start with. My mum and dad know that I'm collecting a series of books. It's called the Complete Yale Edition of the Works of Jonathan Edwards. Yale are very nearly finished with publishing this series now, all 26 volumes of it. Much to my wife's frustration, the amount of bookshelf space this thing takes up. Anyway, just recently, <laughs> just recently, one of the most important books came out. It's a transcript of Jonathan Edwards' blank Bible, which records all the marginal notes that he made in his own copy of the KJV. So it's a really amazing resource if you're into this kind of thing. And you all know that I am into this kind of thing. Anyway, a couple of months before my birthday this year, I went onto the Yale University Press website and I found this book for $100. So I dropped it into my watched items folder and I called my parents because they had very kindly asked me to provide some birthday ideas. And I told them about it and they very kindly wrote me a check for money. Great. Well, at that point, something that I didn't have the right to keep entered my head as a nailed down entitlement the price of the book. No, I wasn't paying attention to the fact that somewhere, probably in quite bold letters on the website actually, it said special introductory discount. I just assumed that somehow, having seen that price, that it was mine by an innate right of creation, and that even though there is apparently good evidence that in other parts of the retail world, introductory discounts do end, I reasoned that that happened to other people, and it certainly wouldn't happen to me. Well, it did. A week before my birthday, I went onto the website to retrieve the book from my watched items folder, and it was 160 bucks. No, they weren't open to negotiation. I tried that, so I didn't get the book for my birthday. Sad story. Well, actually, it's not really that sad a story, is it? It was just a book. But the same psychology applies to things that are a lot more serious. Think about health with me for a minute. Is that something that we have the right to keep? Certainly, I always thought it was. 
especially when we have cheerful adverts played to us on NPR all the time for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live a healthy and productive life. Did you catch that? That all people deserve the chance to live a healthy and productive life. Well, one day when I was 24, I found out that's a lie. My lungs collapsed while I was at work one day. I was rushed to hospital. I picked up a series of secondary viral infections. I ended up with chronic fatigue syndrome and spent large parts of the next 10 years barely able to walk. So you see, health is just another time-limited offer. We can do some smart things to look after ourselves, but the bottom line is we have no idea when that offer will be withdrawn and no rights to negotiate. Do you know that the same thing is true in our walk with God? When God speaks to us in his word and offers us the chance to follow him or the opportunity to change in an area of our lives that he's exposing to us, that too is a time-limited offer. And our passage is going to show us that we have to be very careful about dropping these opportunities into our mental watched items folder because when we come back to them, they may not be there. So let's get into this. Our passage today starts at Acts 12, verse 25, and it runs through to the end of chapter 13. So you'll find we've got a lot of ground to cover here. We're going to tackle it in bits. So will you stand with me in anticipation of what God has got for us? I'm going to start at Acts 12, verse 25, and just read through to chapter 13, verse 5 to start with. Acts 12.25. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. So that's where we're starting. So take your seats. And let's get to it. So as Matthew introduced this last time, we're just about to turn quite a significant corner here in our study of Acts. Peter has made his enigmatic exit, probably heading to Rome, and now we reach the beginning of what we call Paul's missionary journeys. Beginning with our story here, which is set in about AD 47, Paul spent the next 10 years or so pretty much constantly engaged in mission work. He traveled about 7,000 miles by land and sea in that time. And over the next several chapters of Acts, we're going to find out how many of the churches that we hear about later through Paul's letters first came into being in Thessalonica, Philippi, Corinth, Ephesus, and Colossae. Knowing how these churches began can massively enrich our understanding of the rest of the New Testament. So as a preaching team, I know that we're all really excited about getting into this stuff because we know that God willing, it will help us all to be better equipped to hear and obey what God has to say to us in the rest of this amazing book, the Bible. 
So to introduce all this, I thought it might be helpful just to start with a kind of primer on Paul and his thoughts about mission work. The first thing that's really striking about the missionary initiative that begins here in our passage is that it doesn't come out of Jerusalem. It comes out of the church in Antioch that we heard about with Dan Mike a few weeks ago. So that's where we're going to get to this map. Now, would someone just kill the lights at the back so we can... Thanks. Okay. So um, this is just a map of the Mediterranean. We're just on one screen. Um, and I'm just going to put on here a map of Michigan to scale so that you can get an idea roughly of what this looks like. Now, what I've done is I've put Grand Rapids right over where Jerusalem should be. And what we're going to do is just mark up Antioch. So you can see pretty clearly roughly how far away Antioch is. That's where this church is that we're going to be working with this morning. The church in Antioch, you'll remember, was founded when the Jews decided to drive Christians out of Jerusalem. We'll just leave the lights down for a bit. I'll be in the map for another five minutes or so. <laughs> so that happened in probably about AD 34 when Stephen was martyred. Christian refugees initially started sharing their faith in Antioch with local Jews, but then evangelists from Cyprus, which is that little island there, and then also a place from, called Cyrene, started arriving and reaching out to uh, people from non-Jewish backgrounds. It's kind of fun to see where Cyrene is. This will give you an idea of how fast the gospel was spreading. So it's way over there, kind of almost halfway across the U.S. from where we are. So at some point in this period of pioneer mission work with Gentiles in Antioch, probably quite near the start, Barnabas was sent up from Jerusalem to the church there to help them. And probably around AD 44, so this is when the church in Antioch was about eight years old, probably about the same age as Crossroads, Barnabas decided then to take a quick trip just around the corner of the Mediterranean to Tarsus to see if he could get some help from Saul. So let's just show you where Tarsus is here. That's Tarsus. So this is the little journey that he did, I guess probably kind of driving distance about the same as going from Grand Rapids to Ann Arbor or something like that. Obviously, he didn't drive, though. <laughs> Saul and Barnabas, of course, already knew each other. When Saul was converted, back when the church in Antioch was just getting started, Saul had traveled down to Jerusalem and tried to persuade the Christians there that he was really converted. Most of them, of course, were just completely scared out of their minds. You know, this is one of these kind of ruthless killer turned improbable ally moments where it seems like the smart thing to show a bit of caution. Um, but Barnabas, living up to his nicknamed the son of encouragement, did exactly what Matthew was teaching us in that encouragement message a couple of weeks ago. Barnabas could just see in Saul the distinctive works of God in his life. So he took him under his wing and he helped him to speak boldly in the name of the Lord until the Hellenistic Jews, Saul's old friends, decided they were going to try and kill him and then he fled. To find out what happens next, we have to flip on to the book of Galatians. That's where we discover, um, we find out what happened to Saul and when he, where he spent the next few years of his life. Turns out he spent those years based around his hometown in Tarsus, traveling all over the region, and especially spending time in the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So let's go get those up here as well. So this is Cilicia right here. And this is Syria, okay? 
Saul knew that God had called him to, um, to the task of reaching out to the Gentile world. So he devoted himself to study, not only mining deeply into the message about Jesus, but also immersing himself in the language and customs of the people that God had called him to serve. So when Barnabas came calling for him in AD 44, he was ready. And the two men went back to Antioch together and were enabled to teach a great number of people there. But what about the missionary journeys? Where do they come from? Well, I was reminded this week that God rarely asks us to do something full-time until he needs more of what we're already doing part-time. And we can see that principle operating here. Saul and Barnabas were already sharing the gospel with Gentiles as part of their day job in Antioch. Everyone there could see that God had equipped them for the task of reaching out to those who didn't know anything about the faith. So the question about Saul and Barnabas's future became less and less a matter of what and more and more just a matter of when. And that's the question that we see answered in the first part of our passage. In about AD 46, the church in Antioch distinctly sensed God's prompting to release Saul and Barnabas from their responsibilities in, uh, there in the church and to get them ready for a missionary campaign. So now let's have a bit of a think about their actual plan. Given what we know about Paul's preparations, the shape of the first missionary journey shouldn't really come as a surprise, because essentially their goal was just to get into all the major cities of the western part of Galatia and plant churches wherever they could. So let me show you where it is they're going to try and get to. There are four cities that they're really aiming at. The first one here is called Sidian Antioch. Not to be confused with Antioch, where they come from. I know it's kind of, surely there were better names they could have chosen than one that was exactly the same. But anyway, they came from Syrian Antioch and went to Sidian Antioch. Then they went to Iconium, then to Lystra, and then finally to this place here called Derby. So that's basically what our agenda for the day looks like. So we can lose the map now. <clears throat> okay. Probably because it was faster, but also probably because Cyprus was where Barnabas had grown up. Saul and Barnabas decided to take the sea route to get to these target cities. They landed at a place on Cyprus called Salamis, and then they traveled across the island to the capital city, Paphos. And from there, they, they then planned to travel north up to the coast of Galatia. Now, we're going to see in the first part of our passage today that they were willing to have their plans changed by doors that God might open up for them along the way. Right out of the gate when they reach Salamis, they find that they're given opportunities to preach in the local synagogues. And by the time they reach Paphos, the Roman governor of the island has heard about what's going on and he wants to hear the message. But eventually what we'll find is that they're able to get back on track and take a boat over to the mainland. And this is where we see their real heart for mission work. Paul and Barnabas were in the business of preaching the gospel. They started with Jews in each location, but they willingly moved on to Gentiles when Jews were resistant. And in every place they visited, except the last stop in Derby, Luke tells us explicitly that they stayed there until they were physically kicked out. In Sidi and Antioch, we're told that they were expelled from the region after boldly explaining the gospel and seeing many people turn to God. At the next stop in Iconium, they only left after receiving death threats. And in the next stop in Lystra, Paul kept on preaching the gospel until he was physically dragged out of the city by a mob, some of whom have been tailing him on this journey all the way from Sidian Antioch. And he was stoned and left for dead. 
Even after that, he got back up and went straight back into the city. After traveling to Derby, Paul and Barnabas turned straight round and they went back through all of the cities that they'd visited, knowing full well that they were risking their lives to do so. And on that return journey, we get a sense of what it is that they were trying to do. So just skipping forward now to Acts 14, 21, 26, we read that they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And then from Attaliah, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. So you can see that the goal was about founding viable churches, even at enormous personal cost. They weren't content just to run in and run out. And I think this is such an important message for the church today as we think about mission. You see, the world around us has a very distinctive perspective on activities like mission trips. It classes them alongside extreme vacations as ways to discover yourself or to refine your character or ways to do things that you would never consider doing in, your own, or in any other context. But when we start reflecting that perspective in the church, we start losing focus on the heart of biblical mission. Paul and Barnabas' mission trip to Galatia wasn't about whether or not they would have a life-changing experience. All we're told about Paul and Barnabas' experience here is that it was very, very nearly a life-ending experience on multiple occasions. Now, the focus of their mission trip was exclusively centered on meeting needs, needs that the missionaries themselves were already striving to meet in their home context. They wanted to plant churches in places that didn't have churches. They wanted to leave something behind that had the maturity that was required to survive. They appointed elders, they encouraged people to make personal commitments, and it was only when all of that work was completed that they then returned home. So we need to think about this as individuals considering mission work, and also as a church in the way that we pray for our missionaries. Do we know what needs they're going out to meet? Are we willing and equipped to pray for the situations into which they're headed? I know this is something that John and Rosa and, her team are, and their team are just doing an amazing job with at the moment, so that as a church, even on our short-term projects, we can build a collective vision for the specific opportunities, just like Paul and Barnabas' sending church in Antioch did, and so that we can see tasks through to completion as members of our congregations go out to them year after year. Okay, so that gives us a bit of a bird's-eye perspective on Saul and Barnabas' goals. So now let's get into the detail. We're going to drop back into it, chapter 13, verse 6. Saul and Barnabas traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. This is the island of Cyprus. And there they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that's right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. 
Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. What we're reading about here, you'll remember, is an unexpected opportunity. One way or another, Saul and Barnabas' mission to Cyprus came to the attention of the Roman governor of the island, this guy Sergius Paulus. And he summoned them because he wanted to hear the word of the Lord. But they quickly ran into opposition. Sergius Paulus has this Jewish aide who was determined to prevent him from hearing the gospel. And in the section we read, we read, we saw that um, Paul and the aide come into this direct confrontation. Luke is particularly concerned with the names of the characters here. The Jewish aide is introduced to us with two different names. Bar-Jesus, which simply means the son of Joshua and indicates that he's a Jew. And then Elymas, which is a Greek name, which means skillful or expert and sounds a bit like the Greek word for magician. Saul's name also comes into focus here because we learn for the first time that at some point since he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he had picked up a nickname. It doesn't look like God kind of stepped in Abraham style or Simon style and said, no longer will you be called Saul, I call you Paul. No, instead the text just gives us the impression that rather like Barnabas, whose real name was actually Joseph, Saul was simply given a nickname by his fellow believers that called out a truth about his character. And it's kind of a surprising truth. Because Saul, who was named after an Israelite king who stood head and shoulders above his contemporaries, and who was once the Pharisee of Pharisees, and a student of Gamaliel, who was probably one of the preeminent rabbis in all of Jewish history, he was renamed Paul, which means small or humble. And isn't that amazing? What a great illustration of the impact that the gospel has on us making us less, that Jesus might be more. And I love the way that Paul chose to own that name. You remember how he signed his own letters. I, Paul, write this in my own hand. It wasn't as if he was saying, well, my friends call me Paul. I really wish they wouldn't. No, he made that name his own. So here we have it, Elymas versus Paul, a confrontation between skillful, expert, and small. Or perhaps we should say small plus Small's large friend. Because Jesus had told his followers not to worry about what to say when they were brought before synagogues and rulers like this, because the Holy Spirit would teach them what to say. And we see that fulfilled extravagantly here. Paul was enabled, just like Peter was with Ananias and Sapphira, to see right into the heart of this man's soul. And he just lays him flat with a single devastating blow. You are a child of the devil, he says and an enemy of everything that's right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? And now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. And Elymas was left groping about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. This is the first place in our passage where we see the theme that I alluded to at the start. No doubt Elymas began the day we're reading about here believing that his ability to see was a right, just like we do. I don't think he went to bed each night saying, well, I'm thankful for the wonderful gift of my eyes today. 
I read, I walked, I saw my children smile. I hope the good giver of this gift lets me enjoy it again tomorrow. I don't think it entered his head that God had the right to withdraw that gift at any moment he chose. So quite unconscious of the danger of his situation, he used the good gifts that he had been given, health and intelligence and a position of influence, to oppose the God who gave them and sustained them moment by moment. He rejected the opportunity to gain spiritual sight, and he tried to get his master to reject it too. And in the end, he heard the words that I'm sure all of us hope we will never hear. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. It's so striking, isn't it, that the person on the other side of this confrontation is Paul. Because this is almost an exact repeat of Paul's own confrontation with Jesus on the road to Damascus. I wonder whether that partly explains just the confidence and the boldness with which Saul goes after him here. With which Paul, sorry. When he saw Elymas, I think he just saw his former self, a skillful expert striving to discredit and bring down the gospel. And you can almost hear him thinking, I know exactly what Jesus wants to do with you. Because Paul in blindness, sorry, for Paul in blindness, God showed him physically where he was spiritually. For all that he knew about the Bible, Paul could not see the truth about Jesus. It was as if Jesus said to him, look, you're out here killing people in the confidence that you see clearly. Well, this is how clearly you really see. Boom. And now with Elymas, it's the same thing. Jesus says to him, you're here prophesying and advising in the confidence that you see clearly. Well, this is how clearly you really see. Gone. But the tragic point of this story is that this is the last time we hear anything of Elymas in Acts. We never hear that he got a second chance, like Paul did when God sent Ananias to open his eyes. Paul and Barnabas came to Paphos announcing the good news about Jesus, the year of the Lord's favor. Sergius Paulus took the plunge. He believed, and his life was transformed. But Elymas rejected Jesus, and the offer was gone. And that's the truth, I think, that God wants to impress on us as we head into the rest of this passage If we hear God speaking to us today, calling us to come to him or to surrender some part of our lives to him that we've been withholding, we mustn't harden our hearts and just say, later. Because when later comes and we feel ready, the opportunity may have passed. We may find that our decision to say later was actually a decision to say never. So now let's move on with Paul and Barnabas into the next big section of their journey. So we're going to pick this up at verse 14. From Perga, they went on to Sidian Antioch, which is up on the coast of the map that I showed you. And on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. So standing up, Paul motioned his hand and said, Fellow Israelites, and you Gentiles who worship God, Listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors, and he made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. 
After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king, and God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and he will do everything that I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. And as John was completing his work, he said, who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who would travel with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, and they are now witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news, that God, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it's written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I've become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure promise, blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, and he was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wander and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Okay. So what we have in this long section of Scripture is essentially a transcript of the sermon that Paul preached to the Jews in Sidian Antioch. In every city that they visited, Paul and Barnabas began their work in a local synagogue. And so this sermon is directed at Jews as we saw in the introduction to the missionary journeys, it's typical of Paul that he's done his homework, that he knows and can engage with the customs of the people that he's trying to win. And here, of course, he's working with his fellow Jews, so it shouldn't surprise us that he can adapt his presentation of the gospel to speak their language. But the thing about Paul was his readiness to do this with anyone. Paul had prepared himself so thoroughly that he could argue like a Greek with the Greeks just as easily as he could argue like a Jew with the Jews. That was what he meant by becoming all things to all people in order to save some. And that just gives us a challenge. Just look at how seriously Paul took his call to connect with the people that he went to serve as a missionary. So Paul was trying to get under the skin of Jews here. And if we want to feel the force of this argument we've just read... We have to hear it like a Jew would hear it. Now, obviously, there's an enormous amount that could be said about Paul's technique for speaking to Jews. But Paul does use one particular trick here, which is very common in Jewish writing. And I want to take a couple of minutes to open it up for us. 
partly because I think it gives us the key to this passage, but also because once you have it in your hands, I hope you'll be able to use it yourselves to unlock many other passages of Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. So here's the trick. Jewish arguments are often presented in what's called a chiastic structure. Chiastic basically means symmetrical. So a chiastic argument is simply one where the elements balance each other on either side of a central conclusion, which is kind of weird, isn't it? Like if you submitted an essay at college and you put your conclusion in the middle, I'm guessing that wouldn't get a particularly good grade. (laughs) Chiastic logic is really alien to our Western way of building arguments because we are used to seeing the conclusion at the end. You know the kind of thing. Tanks are invading uh, Poland from Slovakia. Tanks are invading Poland from Germany. Tanks are invading Poland from Lithuania. Tanks are invading Poland from Hungary. Therefore, Poland is being invaded by tanks. It's not a most sparkling piece of logic, but it's a good Western argument. A plus B plus C plus D equals E. But that's not the way that arguments always work in Hebrew thought. For a Jew, a well-constructed argument often places the heart of the matter in the middle and then stacks up supporting information in concentric rings around it. And that's what we're going to see Paul doing here. So I'm going to try and give you some examples and analogies to help you get your heads around this. First of all, I'm going to show you a picture of a famous building. It's the Villa Capra in Vicenza, designed by Palladio. So let's get it up on the screen. If someone can knock the lights out again, that would be really great. And if you just refresh it. Whee! Perfect. Okay, there it is. Nice building. And um, my question for you is just where's the door? Where do you think? Any thoughts? Yeah, and which, where, where do you think the action is? Right, in the middle. Exactly. Now, it's obviously not the easiest question to answer, but when you're thinking like the lady who said that, you're thinking like a Jew. You see, when we read physical spaces, we're not limited to our linear way of thinking. We don't assume that Palladio just works from the left to the right. It's kind of like, oh, I'm right, here we go, walking across, the door must be on the far right. No, we read the symmetry of the building, and we say, okay, well, it's got a statue over there on the left, and look, it's got a statue over there on the right. And it's kind of got a gable structure there and there, and then it's got these kind of grand windows, and then this pediment thing. Everything seems to be, the energy seems to be concentrated around the middle. If I had to walk up and knock on something, I'm guessing I would go right through the center, and you're exactly right. Now, a chiasm is what happens when you apply that kind of logic to the discipline of writing. So I'm going to try and give you an example of that. It's kind of a goofy example, but I hope that most of you will get it. How many of you are familiar with the basic plot of Star Wars, the original film? Okay, that's a good number of fans. Well, it turns out that George Lucas, who wrote the film, was a fan of chiastic structures, and the whole film is built around this Jewish chiastic logic. So let me show you. So we're going to put this on the screen. Okay, so apologies to all you um, classical architecture fans here. I have to turn Palladio's building on its side in order to make this work. (laughs) Um, So a long, long, 
long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, we meet Luke Skywalker at the beginning of the film, and he's lonely and he's unfulfilled on this desert planet, isn't he, where we first meet him? Well, right at the end of the film, we meet Luke Skywalker again, and he's, he's not, no longer lonely. He's with his kind of home team, and he's found his place in the world. He's a hero, and he's fulfilled. Next step in the logic. Straight after we meet Luke Skywalker, we're introduced to this enigmatic hermit character, Ben Kenobi. And he kind of comes onto the stage as a mentor for Luke. Well, those of you who know the film will know that at the end, Ben Kenobi reappears just before the end of the film. Even though he's dead, he reappears as this kind of mental presence in Luke's head, again as a mentor figure. Next layer in. After we meet Ben Kenobi, we see Luke is bereaved and left alone. So at the start of the film, he loses his aunt and his uncle. They're murdered by this evil galactic empire. Um, but then at the end of the film, you see exactly the same thing. So Luke flies out on this mission to destroy the Death Star with all of his buddies. And they're shot out of the sky on either side of him. And he's left completely alone to do the task on his own. Next step in the film, we see a kind of journey narrative. So after he's bereaved and loses his aunt and uncle, he travels with um, friends to the Death Star, and he's tracked by the Empire all the way. And again, if you know the movie, what you'll find is that just before this whole sequence at the end, there's another journey where they travel from the Death Star to the Rebel base, and again, they're tracked by the Empire. And then in the middle of the film, we get this whole thing which is surrounded about the, the messages about rescue. So we have Han Solo and Luke Skywalker rescuing Princess Leia from captivity. She's in a prison cell on the Death Star. And then balancing it on the other side of that, she's rescued again from the pursuit of all these fighter jets that come out and they have to uh, deliver her from that. And then right in the middle of the film, we find that we've got Ben Kenobi sacrificing himself to save Han Solo and Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia to make this whole thing possible. Now the purpose of this analysis is basically just to show that the central idea of the film of Star Wars is self-sacrifice. The concentric rings that are balancing it all is bringing everything down to this point where Ben Kenobi gives his own life in order to let the others survive. And so you can see that that's what George Lucas is trying to communicate. That's how a chiasm works. Now, there are tons of these all over the Bible. Many of the Psalms are chiasms. The whole book of Daniel is a chiasm. Most of the book of Esther is a chiasm, and they're just all over the place. The purpose is always to help us identify the author's main point, which is always at the center. It's kind of the right question to ask of a chiasm is, what's the point? Because you can kind of see, right, there's the point right in the middle. And now we understand them, we've got the tools in our hands that we need to understand the sermon that Paul is preaching here in Acts. So let's get into it. In verses 16 to 20, Paul introduces his sermon by laying out the story of the Exodus, he reminds us how God was faithful to his promises, how he built the Jewish people up into a great nation and led them out of captivity with mighty power. But then do you see that at the end of Paul's sermon in verses 38 and 39, he returns to the same theme. He goes back to Moses to make the point that there's no comparison between the law of the Old Testament and the freedom that we're now offered in Jesus. And I'm actually going to, sorry, well, I'm going to do it again. So this is going to be, I'll build this on the screen for you. You'll see how this chiasm works. So here we go. So again, we'll use this villa as our start point. So that's the first layer of it. Verses 16 to 20, he introduces the law of Moses. That's on the way in. Then on the way out, 
Verses 38 to 39, he shows us the limitations of the law of Moses. And we're going to just keep building these rings as we go along. Paul is using this chiastic structure to show us that Moses only offers us a picture of what Jesus ultimately accomplished. The sacrifices and the regulations that Moses brought down from the mountain show us what it would look like to have every offense that we have ever caused God and every trace of our ingratitude for the gift that he has given us um, just washed away. But it's Jesus who actually does it. With Jesus, we move from the picture at the beginning to the reality at the end, from merely believing it's possible to believing that it actually happened. So the law of Moses is perhaps like one of those instructional flight safety videos, you know, that you're shown on a plane before you take off. You know how they kind of act out the components of a crash and show you all the things that you need to do to escape, but it's only acting. But with Jesus, Paul is trying to show us that we're doing this for real, that if we follow his instructions, we really can step out of the wreckage of a life that's trying to be God right here this morning if we want to. Wherever God is prodding at us today, if he's goading us, saying, come on, come on, Neil, this is the place where I want you to step up. This is where I want you to step out in my strength. This is the thing that I want you to change. This is the thing that I want to see you deal with. Well, there's power available for us to turn that call into action today if he's placing it on our hearts today. Because Jesus is the real thing. He's not an instructional video. He's maybe a bit like that U.S. Airlines pilot who ditched his plane in the Hudson River and then personally walked the length of the cabin, even though it was half full of water, twice in order to make sure that everyone was out. That was the narrow window that there was to accept that offer of rescue. Jesus is telling us, this is for real, people. This is not a drill. And that's the purpose of this chiasm. The elements on either side of the center balance each other and contrast with each other. The law of of Moses is just a picture of salvation, but Jesus is the real thing. So now verses 20 to 22 give us the next layer. Paul's going to turn now from Moses to David. He reminds us what God said about him. I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and he will do everything I want him to do. But just like the first layer, Paul comes back later in the message to show us that great though he was, David was just a picture of the Savior. So let's get that up here. So can you see how this works, balancing the, the introduction and then kind of the intro and the outro for songwriters? So in verses 33 to 37, we find Paul quoting Psalms, don't we? He's borrowing here the same argument that Peter used on the day of Pentecost. David served God's purpose in his own generation, says Paul, which was great for his generation, but that's pretty much as far as it went. But the king who summons us to obedience today is totally different. David walked into death and stayed dead. But Jesus walked into death and walk right out the other side. Until Jesus arrived, nobody knew what to do with the words, I will not let my Holy One see decay. But now it's kind of obvious, isn't it? Death was no obstacle for him. And he tells us that we will pass through it too, if we trust him. So here it is again, balance and contrast. David is just a picture of salvation, but Jesus is the real thing. Now on to the next layer, verses 23 to, 20 to 25. Paul moves now to John the Baptist, the messenger who prepared the way 
for Jesus' ministry, and he has exactly the same emphasis in mind. For the benefit of anyone who was hoping that John himself might offer the way back to God or the power to change when our consciences are pricked, Paul quotes John's own words, I'm not the one you're looking for. And on the way out of the chiasm in verses 31 and 32, Paul balances that message of John with the message of the apostles. John appeared merely to set the stage for Jesus. The apostles were anointed, appointed merely to repeat Jesus' message. So let's get that up here. Okay. So, all this ultimately has us focused now right on the center of Paul's argument. This is the bit that he really wants us to get. This is the door through which we're intended to go. And here we get the surprise. Because what we're expecting at this center point of the chiasm is Jesus. And that is what we get. But Paul packs in a little bit of extra information here to show us where his heart really lies with this message. Did you catch it? He says, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it's to us that this message of salvation has been sent. Okay, so far so good. That's Jesus, the message of salvation. But then look at the commentary he puts with it. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. So let's just get that final layer in. Do you see that it's not just that Jesus is, is the Messiah, but that it's possible to reject him and blow it? So do you see this is exactly the same thing that we saw with Elymas repeated? Paul's message is not just that there is a savior who can deliver us from sin and guilt and who is present right now to help us apply the truths of his word that he's impressing on us. Paul's message is that the savior is offering himself to us and that we have the opportunity to reject him. We can't frustrate God's plan. The cross shows us that. God will achieve all that he wishes, whether or not that's our intention. But we can miss the boat for ourselves. Because God's offer of rescue to the lost and God's offer to help us when we feel him dialing in on some area of our heart that's out of shape, we need to understand that offer is his offer. It's not ours by right. If we say to ourselves, God, I, I know you're really speaking to me about something at the moment, but I just I can't get to it now. If we get into the habit of dropping his challenges to us into our mental watched items folder, we need to get used to the fact that when we come back, they may not be there. And so this is where the passage ends. On the next Sabbath, Luke tells us in verse 44, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. And then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first. But since you reject it, and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. Now we turn to the Gentiles. So you see, God cannot be thwarted. His word continues to advance, whether we like it or not. But we can't use that fact to mask our responsibility for what we do with the gospel message that we have received. Paul and Barnabas walked away from the Jews in Scythian Antioch. They told them that since you do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, and the offer was gone. So do we consider ourselves worthy of eternal life? Because though this gym may seem ordinary or less than ordinary, 
And though this whole Sunday may just be ordinary or less than ordinary to you, that is what is on the table here. Paul is very direct about it. I want you to know, he says, that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and that through him you can be set free of every sin if you believe. One day, the sins that are popping into our minds at the moment, occasions where we've been proud or violent, where we've held other people in contempt, or where we've taken the blessings that God has given us for granted, those sins will rise up and bar the way to eternal life for us if someone or something doesn't step in to intervene. And whether we act on it or not, the record will show that this morning we were offered that intervention. This passage is offering us Jesus, who makes Moses and David and John the Baptist look just like a child's drawing of God's real life-transforming power. God is offering us that power. He's offering us Jesus for forgiveness of sin and to change where our lives need to change. And if we don't accept it, it may not be there tomorrow. The story of Elymas provides a chilling warning for us if we need one. If God is within his rights to withdraw physical sight, how much more is he within his rights to withdraw the offer of spiritual sight? And how much more terrible is it if it happens? God can call time on any of our blessings whenever he chooses. If he's offering us the chance to respond to his grace or the chance to go deeper into the grace that we have received and we're prevaricating, what makes us think that he's bound to continue offering until listening and responding seems convenient to us? If Jesus is so far above all the types and pictures of the Old Testament, as Paul shows us he is here, if he's the destination to which they all point, if he's the hope for humanity, the way to forgiveness, the power to overcome our stubborn sins, how should we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? So as we head into worship now, we've got communion tables set up here on the left and the right. And if there's anyone who just feels God tugging at them in response to this, then these are for you. If you feel you just need to lay down just kind of lay down your weapons at God's feet and accept this offer of intervention that Jesus makes, then this is for you. Or if you feel that God is just pulling at something that you've been holding back for him, or he's really got his finger on something that you're trying to ignore and you just realize, I just can't afford to ignore it, then these are for you. So I'll pray and then we'll have communion while we worship. God in heaven, you just really put us in our place with this passage. It's just so blunt that we just, it's not here for our convenience. God, this offer of mercy is your offer, and we are not to presume on you that you will always have it for us. So God, we hear your word calling to us, now is the day of salvation, and that we need to do something about it, that we need to respond if we count ourselves worthy of eternal life. So God, would you please work in our hearts? Would you draw us to you? Would you give us the courage to let you be the shepherd, to let you rule over us and lead us, because we know that we need it. In Jesus' name, amen.